Live from CNBC Global Headquarters, this is Fast Money. I am Dominic Chu, in for Melissa Lee today. Tonight's trader lineup, you've got Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman will join us in just moments here. Coming up on the show, new quarter, new strategy. We'll break down what you should be doing with your money as we kick off the second half of 2020. Plus, Tesla zooming to a new all-time high. But has this stock come too far, too fast? We will debate it. And later on, Beyond Meat sizzling on some very big news out of China. We'll bring you all the juicy non-meat details coming up. But we start first with technology on a tear as we kick off the second half of the year. The Nasdaq Composite hitting a new record high in today's trading, led by gains in the FANG names, the so-called FANG names, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, all higher, as you can see there. So can we expect more highs ahead? And for that, we'll turn to you first, Guy. Does this resonate with you right now, this notion that it's the mega cap tech stocks that continue to be the leadership in the kind of market we have today? Well, you know what resonates with me? I hear your voice, Don, but I'm looking at Engelbert Humperdick, brother, because you got that shirt open, no tie. You're rocking it out. I mean, this is, this is Dom that's what's after resonating hour. with Dom me. after hours, guy. This is what it looks like. That's, well, I'm, and I'm liking it. I'm also, I mean, you have to be impressed with the market as well. I mean, does it resonate with me? Absolutely. I'm not going to pretend I've been bullish. Tim's been all over this. But what, you know, there's a Metallica song from 1992, Nothing Else Matters. Not that I'm a huge Metallica fan either. Wow. But nothing else matters but the Fed and the fact that we have this passive investing that continues to work. Apple's in close to 280 ETFs. I think 220 of them, Apple's in one of the top 15 holdings. Facebook is in about 220 ETFs, and 170 of those, Facebook is one of the top 15 holdings. What it means is money continues to pour in mindlessly into these names. We did point out, I think on June 29th, that reversal in Facebook, and we did a good job there. But think about it. Even with all the news with Facebook, it's right back to levels we saw prior to the triumvirate of REI, North Face, and uh, what's the other one? I forget now. Dan, ben and Jerry's, the, the Verizon, you name it. <laughs> right. So it's just it speaks volumes as to what's going on here. It, the market is impervious to any news that could possibly be negative. Now, we, we do have Karen Feinerman. I see her up there right now. And, and, I, and I kind of feel like you've been hearing us, but we haven't been able to see you until just now. Karen, I guess I toss it to you. You know, Guy brings up passive investing. We know that much of the ETF flows that go in there will have to buy names like Apple and Microsoft and whatnot. Do you think these days it's more of those ETF buyers that are driving this kind of a market? Or are there actually stock pickers out there who are saying, hey, these mega cap names have better relative value than other ones out there? I, I think it's some of both. But I think the other thing that Guy hit on, which I think is the most important thing, is the Fed. And, um, you know, as long as the Fed has said, we're there, we got your back, no problem. I think it's given investors a lot of confidence that any kind of pullbacks will be minimal and that people will buy the dip, even though what you look at in the economy, what's been going on and with the uh, reclosings, I think, you know, you can paint a pretty bearish picture. But so far, just not fighting the Fed has, has been the way to go. And I thought it was sort of interesting today where they had some discussion about do they have targets and they decided not to. I totally understand why they don't want to have targets because what if they put them out there and things aren't going their way and people get afraid, oh my God, the Fed has lost control. That would be, 
that would probably be a pretty bad scenario. So, 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 so Tim, for as mean, long as the Fed's still there. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's a great point that Karen brings up here. I mean, the, the Fed has been, by many measures, the one factor that so many people say is what's driving the market action right now. And, and Karen made all yeah. those points to it. Is there anything that you can make about this market that isn't directly tied to the world awash with money and cash? Well, uh, it's tough. First of all, Karen makes a lot of great points. Uh, Guy referred to the 92 Metallica album, the Black Album, and the real song off of that album was called Enter Sandman. And it's, it's lights out for, for shorts if you're fighting that liquidity that we're all talking about. So um, all I can tell you is the fall in volatility. And if you look at the S&P and it traded, it traded in almost a 15-point range and a tighter range than that for most of the day. Uh, the market was, was not moving. Um, as the VIX falls, Marco Kalanovich last night brought up on our show, as, as the VIX falls, the market will go higher. Whether this is holiday-induced lethargy, whether this is just uh, people waiting to see the news flow, that is a, it's such a critical component to what we're doing here. And if, and if volatility falls, um, now, why will volatility fall? I think there's a couple things that were out today. Uh, we had a great day of macro data. I realize these are uh, less bad points or glass half full is my view, but ADP came in 2.37 million jobs added after revising May to adding 3 million jobs from what was a negative 2.5 million down. Um, the ISM uh, manufacturing number, I know we're a services economy, but um, printed at 52.6, and every part of that was strong. Uh, PMIs around the world, uh, including China, were good last night. So the data isn't awful. Uh, but I think the most important thing about the data is the virus right now. And although cases are going higher, mortality rates are going lower. And that just may be a function of we're getting more tests out there. And I think there's some confidence that comes with that. All right. So confidence is key right now, Dan. And, and I'll bring you in here because up until now, we've talked about many of the constructive parts of the market. Was there not that I'm putting you in the kind of minority opinion category, right? But is there anything about today's action that gives you pause or maybe worries you a little bit. So the minority opinion, you obviously watch the show. Thanks for watching there, Dom. <laughs> um, listen, you know, just to kind of keep with this Metallica theme here, enter Sandman, who entered to that tune? It was Mo Rivera, and he had one pitch. You know what that pitch was, Dom? The cutter, right? Yeah. Well, let me tell you who's got multiple pitches. The Fed. They're not just a one-pitch wonder here, um, but they are trying to close this thing out a little bit. And, and I'll just say this, you know, when we talk about technology, this discussion that my, my esteemed panel just had here, you know, we have a little bit of a mania in a Fed-induced bubble going on right here. I'm just looking at some of the price action today alone in Amazon, up nearly 5%, up nearly 10% in three trading days off the Monday low. That's gained more than $100 billion in market cap. You know what has $100 billion in market cap right now, Dom? Shopify, okay? This is a company that obviously is doing very well in this pandemic economy, enabling a lot of retailers kind of go direct to consumer. But that company with $100 billion market cap is trading about 50 times sales. So there we get back to the mania. There we have a little bit of a bubble here. If all the money in a day like today is going into those sorts of stocks, the mega cap and the speculative high valuation ones, then you say to yourself, then I'm going to answer your question here. Well, what the hell else is going on in this market? Well, small caps traded really poorly. Banks traded really poorly. 
Oil stocks traded really poorly. The reversal in the transports we're going to talk later were it was atrocious given FedEx's price action here. And, and I just say to myself, I, I don't know what investors are looking at as we head into the second half of this year. Yes, maybe some of the data on the on the pandemic, on the virus spreading is likely to get better from here. But who knows, man? So the market is discounting a whole heck of a lot of good news around therapies, around vaccine, around reopenings and valuations, no matter which way you look at it, are getting very stretched. I'm not telling you valuations a reason to sell the market here, but those stocks that are climbing the way they are and, and, and are commanding the valuations and the market caps, um, it's just not particularly sustainable. It will not be here in a few months. All right, this is the perfect group of setup pitchers to get into our next topic as we have a bona fide debate going right now. We've got all the points in here. Let's now bring in Mandy Zhu, who's the chief equity derivative strategist over at Credit Suisse. And Mandy, I don't know if you've been listening to this kind of panel debate that we've been having right here, but it speaks to the overall narrative in the, in the market right now and maybe the reason why we've been range bound. Which way is this market supposed to go given the cross currents in both corporate and macro data? Yeah, no, it's great to be on the show. And you guys have definitely laid out a really great case, you know, either uh, both ways. And to me, uh, the telling thing about today's price action is the fact that in an up day, all the cyclical sectors were lagging, right? And they've lagged for quite a while now. And to me, that really just signals investor pessimism on the economic outlook. So I think everyone is at this point very aware of all the negative news out there, right? The rising the rise in cases, uh, virus cases in parts of the U.S., potential reclosings, etc. Um, but I think people are not paying enough attention to potential positives, right? Everyone talks about the Fed. That's, you know, pretty well understood. What about fiscal stimulus, right? We have a big fiscal cliff coming up later this month. Um, my, my view is that, you know, we're going to get an extension to a lot of these stimulus measures for the second half of the year. Um, and then, as we saw today, you know, positive news about vaccines, right? So I think the pessimism is well understood. It's well reflected in the positioning. And then just to bring it back to the derivative market, it's also reflected in the pricing in the derivative market where we've seen a lot of demand for downside hedges, downside puts. And in fact, that demand for that downside hedges, it's higher today than it was at the peak of the crisis in March. So to me, that's the asymmetry or that is the dislocation that stands out given the positive, I would say positive, you know, policy backdrop. Um, so to me, that's the opportunity, and our view actually going forward is actually quite constructive, given, you know, the, the still very cautious positioning in the market. So, so Mandy, so l- let me bring this up, and you, you mentioned this kind of this, uh, this asymmetry that's happening with regard to pricing in the options market, more people flooding towards the downside insurance. That, that's something that traders call options skew, right, that, that the, the relative pricing exactly. of those puts relative to calls of similar type price movements. What exactly then does that tell you about what, what it looks like in the next, say, three, five, six, twelve months? How does this play out in the marketplace? You say it's constructive, but is it an even path? Uh, not necessarily. You know, it doesn't signal that it's going to be a straight line up, but it certainly suggests that the downside risk is well understood and well priced in. So, you know, that means, you know, really what is underpriced is the upside risk, right, to the market. And then in terms of, you know, on the way up, what I think will lead is, is the cyclical sectors because the, the rally so far has been really led by tech. It's been led by healthcare, It's been led by a lot of the defensive sectors. 
from here, if we're going to get further upside in equities, I do believe it will come from positive surprises to economic data. It will come from a more V-shaped recovery in terms of economic growth, and in which case, you know, the cyclical sectors should benefit uh, more. The value names should benefit more in that backdrop. And in particular, given still, you know, very high economic uncertainty, we really like playing that upside through options. So that's one thing that we've seen a lot of investors do. Um, you know, the most of the flow that we've seen have been hedges, but the bullish flow, the, the bullish flow that we have seen have been concentrated in a lot of these cyclical sectors, for example, financials, playing for a catch-up trade there. All right. So, Mandy, before we let you go, is there any place in the market right now, any data point, any sector, industry, stock, anything like that, that serves as a possible canary in the coal mine for you about whether or not the direction is to the upside, if it's constructive down the line? Um, I think, you know, like to me, what um, to watch for is credit. And if we see a pickup, a significant pickup in credit market volatility or credit spreads, I think that would be a big negative for equity. So I would say actually at the macro level, that is the indicator that I'm looking at most closely. All right. Mandy Zhu over at Credit Suisse, thank you very much for joining us. Always great to get your thoughts here. Thank you. All right. Now, Karen, I saw you kind of nodding and, 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 and kind of following along in that conversation. What exactly resonated with you there? I'm just watching kind of the reactions that you had during that interview. Uh, well, it's sort of interesting to me that she talked about the skew in terms of bearishness, that how much protection there is um, that, pe- that investors have to protect the downside. You know, for a lot of weeks, we kept hearing, all right, we're going to retest the lows. And that was probably in April and May. And then, you know, obviously, we're significantly higher from there. That gives me comfort to hear that uh, the market is sort of positioned for a downward move up because then the path of least resistance or the pain trade, as Tim calls it, is probably higher. All right. So we're watching that pain trade for sure. Another big story, everyone, to kind of keep an eye on here. We've got some big news out of Pfizer today on its experimental coronavirus vaccine. Let's get straight out to Meg Terrell with the details. And it was a market mover. Meg, what can you tell us? It sure was, Dom. These were very early data, the first that we've seen from human trials of Pfizer's vaccine program for COVID with its German partner, BioNTech. Uh, Now, they enrolled 45 healthy people into this study, ages 18 to 55, and they presented data uh, specifically looking at two lower doses uh, for 24 patients. And they found that all of those participants generated neutralizing antibodies, which block the virus's ability to enter the cell at levels about two to three times what you'd see in patients who've recovered from COVID. COVID-19. We don't know yet if that level is going to be high enough to provide protection and for how long, uh, but that's what they're going to find out in the bigger trials. Safety, of course, incredibly important here as well. They did see pain at the injection site, fatigue, headache, and fever, which they saw did get worse at higher doses and after the second shot. Uh, That's why they focused on these two lower doses uh, as well. Now, they are heading toward that phase three clinical trial. They're going to select the best vaccine. This was just the first of four that they're looking at to start a 30,000 participant trial in the second half of this month. That puts them really neck and neck with Moderna, which plans to start its phase three with 30,000 people this month. AstraZeneca planning to start July or August and then Johnson & Johnson a few months later. So we are going to start seeing these results uh, over the summer and into the fall. Um, And meanwhile, these companies are ramping up their manufacturing at the same time. Pfizer says it expects to have 100 million doses of this vaccine by the end 
of the year and 1.2 billion by the end of 2021. That's of course, Dom, if all goes well in the studies and they get the regulatory approvals, uh, but they're working hard right now to make sure they have it available if they do succeed. Back Some of the biggest names in biopharma, pharma and biotechnology trying to work towards that vaccine. Thank you very much, Meg Terrell, for the latest there on that Pfizer vaccine update. So let's trade Pfizer. I, I would say it, let's put it in context first, because we saw a nice move higher in Pfizer today. But let's point out that on a year to date basis, everyone, we're still talking about a mega cap drug stock that's down 14 percent so far in 2020 and is down 23 percent so far over the last 12 months. Maybe it was due for a bit of an uptick here. So maybe, Guy, I'll go to you first. Is this bullish Pfizer in your mind? Yeah, it is. And look at you doing your homework, Dom. Loving that. You're coming on fast money and you've got your numbers in front of you. Outstanding. Pfizer, I think, is cheap. It should have bounced. It should be higher. But the real outperformer, and one we've talked about for a while, continues to be Eli Lilly. I mean, that stock is within the whisper of its all-time high. On top of that, get a huge move today in Amgen off a positive ruling from one of the circuit courts. I think that stock's now making an all-time high, which reaffirms the breakout that we've seen in the IBB. So big cap pharma and uh, biotech continue to work. And there's no reason, in my opinion, this is what we said for quite some time, that they won't continue to move to the upside. Is Pfizer, Tim Seymour, is Pfizer the place that you want to play this when it comes to large cap, mega cap, bio, biopharma? Or are there other players that well, are trafficking in vaccines right now that are better in your mind? I think in terms of relative value, uh, you know, I like Pfizer and Merck relative to the rest of the space. And I think they, they, you know, some argue they're trading at a discount for a reason. But as it relates to the vaccines, I mean, the, the news out of Pfizer is, is obviously exciting. Uh, we're waiting on a handful of, you know, Moderna's in late stage trial. But, but no matter where we are, uh, one of the things we've talked about on the show is that this isn't necessarily a boom for the underlying drug companies. It's really more of a market call. Um, if I'm playing pharma here, and I agree, I, I actually want to own Pfizer here. Uh, I own Merck, and I do think AbbVie V are the, the kind of the, the best names relative to valuation. But, but I actually think this is more of a market call. And I think the kind of news we're getting is at least giving people some confidence that some of the smartest and best drug companies in the world are going after this. And I think that was part of the stew today. I mean, again, we had great macro. We certainly had uh, dynamics in terms of markets and volatility and positioning. But, but ultimately, we continue to get decent data. And I think people better understand where the virus data is from the front line, even though the case numbers are getting higher. Um, I think there's a big debate over just uh, where mortality actually is. Healthcare is certainly a key focus right now. All right, guys, thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, we're going to tackle the transportation stocks. Big follow through from FedEx on its earnings report last night into today. Should you package up this stock and add it to your portfolio? Our traders will debate that coming up next. And then later on in the show, tensions rising. Protesters taking to the streets of Hong Kong over new security laws. We're breaking down the big money impact when Fast Money returns after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. FedEx topping the tape today. We are seeing some strong follow through last night's earnings report. The stock surging double digits on those results. Now, despite those big gains, the transportation industry group failed to hold in positive territory today. Dan Nathan, I turn to you. You alluded to this earlier. It's not exactly a positive sign in your mind that the transports couldn't hold the gains despite a massive move higher by FedEx. 
Yeah, a hor- horrible price action in the group. You saw the rails traded very poorly. Um, those airlines had a horrendous day. United Airlines closed 10% off of its opening highs here. That's just a disaster. Um, so when you look at it, you know, the group as a whole on a day like today with one of the top 10 holdings up 12% and it can't hold those gains, you say to yourself, very stock specific. We talked about FedEx last night on the show. This is a stock as of yesterday's close was down 50% from its all-time highs in 2018. The story there is that expectations have been ground down for two years. So finally, you see some light at the end of the tunnel. Investors are saying this is a cheap stock, possibly at an inflection point. But the price action in the transports, I think today was very troubling. Without FedEx, you w- we would have been opening the show with the transport reversal today. Really quickly, Guy Adami, I, I want to turn to you on this one here as well. Do you consider FedEx or UPS those types of names, are, are they in a COVID playbook for you? Are they the ones that you would consider to be like a Netflix or a Peloton? Because it sure seems like it's a big part of the narrative with e-commerce shipments these days. Yeah, I mean, my, my playbook days ended in college, but I hear what, I totally get what you're saying. And you mentioned Netflix. I mean, I had a monster day today. So clearly that trade is alive and well. But in terms of what Dan just said, it's really interesting you know, Facebook did make an all-time high in September of 2018, and since then, you've had a series of lower lows and lower highs. Not particularly good. And today, great, yes, I get it, huge day to the upside. FedEx typically trades about 2.5 million shares per day, traded 18 million shares or so today. Uh, my math suggests that's over six times normal volume, and it traded right up to the price target UBS slapped on them a few weeks ago. So... My inclination, and I'm wrong a lot, and I'll probably be along with this, is you take profits in this name and continue that, you know, you bank on that trend for the last two years or so, continuing to the downside. All right, should, it has been a near, near and medium term uptrend for sure for FedEx stock since the COVID-19 lows back in March. We'll keep an eye on that trade. Coming up on the show, we are following a developing story out of Hong Kong where protesters have taken to the streets as a new security law goes into effect in that special administrative region of China. Those details coming up ahead. Plus, are auto sales on the road to recovery? We have the latest data and those trades when Fast Money returns after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story out of Hong Kong. Police launching a big crackdown as a new security law imposed by China goes into effect. Eunice Yoon is there and has the details. U.S. businesses are reassessing their exposure to Hong Kong after China imposes new national security law on the city. Thousands of protesters defied a police ban on the July 1st anniversary of the Hong Kong handover. Police arrested more than 300 people. Beijing critics believe the law is meant to quash dissent. It covers nonviolent as well as violent activities, threatens life in prison, and suggests tough cases be extradited to mainland China. Most surprising, the law applies to anyone, anywhere, including people who don't live in Hong Kong. Chinese officials, though, say Beijing exercised restraint with this law since it's not retroactive. Separately, China ordered four American news organizations, AP, NPR, UPI, and CBS News, to submit detailed information about their China-based operations to the government by next Tuesday, the latest twist in the U.S.-China dispute. Tensions rising for sure. That was Yunus Yun in Beijing reporting. So 
Is China risk back in play as we head into the second half of the year? Tim, we turn to you. We always know you had you were an ambassador in a, in a previous iteration of Fast Money. So talk to us about that trade. Yes. Is this worrisome for you on that front? Well, it, it is worrisome, underlying that this is the 23rd year anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from the British. I mean, it, it's it's not lost the irony there. Um, and this is an aggressive crackdown. And, and this is a sad day. It's a very sad day. I have a lot of friends that uh, have worked out there and done business. A lot of folks have left that city over the last really over the last year. Um, if you look at the FXI, which is the ETF, that is the Hong Kong traded uh, Chinese uh, mega cap stocks, and that includes some state-run banks, uh, et cetera, China Construction Bank, Tencent, et cetera. That's actually about to break out through the 200-day. And if you look at emerging markets, for the most part, they've been, they've been struggling and underperforming, but looking uh, at some of the news flow over the last two months and just a, a downward trend in volatility as breakout time. So um, I think this is not going away. I think this is going to be an issue for the world. It should be an issue for the world. Uh, it's a sad day. And I think uh, whether, that, whether that has an impact on on asset prices for emerging market stocks, especially those traded in China. Um, I'm of the view that the mega cap tech stocks in China continue to go higher with those in the U.S. and around the world. That trade is not getting derailed. And there's a lot of liquidity in all parts of the world, but in the local markets in China as well. All right. Well, let's talk more about these rising risks with China. Joining us now is Longview Global's Dwardrick McNeil. He's a former senior China policy analyst for the Department of Defense. Welcome to Wardrick. I, I mean, this is a big deal. Hong Kong has been a trade center around the world for so many years. Does now this action by China cast into doubt Hong Kong's viability as a commerce center for East Asia? Don, thank you for having me. Thank you for the question. Look, I think the geopolitical risk of doing business in Hong Kong has increased exponentially with the passage of the national security law. I think companies are gonna to have to really ask themselves, what are the risks and what are the rewards to staying? And do we have a contingency plan to move perhaps to somewhere like, like Singapore? But I agree with the, with the previous guest that this is a long-term issue. We have now Hong Kong being added to a list of other irritants in the US-China relationship. The trade war, of course, we know about, 5G and the tech war. Now with the passage of, of the National Security Act, as well as the U.S. Congress's passing of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which requires an annual report on whether or not Hong Kong has maintained its freedoms, uh, means that this is going to be with us for a while. And so if I were uh, sitting in the C-suites, I would really start to assess what are my, what are my risk rewards, what are my geopolitical uh, risks with, with remaining in Hong Kong. And I will say, uh, as the reporter uh, said to us on the ground, the expansiveness of this particular uh, law gives great concern to many of us. As we understand it, residents, non-residents, you can even trigger a violation, Dom, from sitting here in your, your home in, in America. So I think it's something to pay attention to. I don't know that businesses are prepared to pull the parachute just yet, but I can promise you that if you have any interest in Hong Kong, you are looking at how you mitigate or eliminate, if possible, your geopolitical risk. You, you know that right now, Dwardrick, that, that there are policymakers on both sides of the Pacific who are trying to say, hey, calmer heads will prevail. Let's work through this. But let's talk about the, the real kind of like, I guess, black swan type risk. Let's say that China says, you know what, we're just going to take it over. 
it, it belongs to us anyway. We're just going to make it part of China. It's no longer a special administrative region with its own, you know, one government, two systems approach. Does China have the leverage to, to just take away the commerce center that, that is Hong Kong like that in this kind of a world today? Certainly they have the, the leverage and, and the legal uh, right to do so, or as we've seen with the national security law, uh, they will just pass a law that gives them that right. But let me just say, having the ability to do it and the incentive to do it are two different things. Look, Hong Kong, despite all the disruption that we've seen, is still extremely important to China's development. China had a big plan, if, if you uh, may remember, some of your viewers may remember, for the Greater Bay Development Region, which will link Macau, uh, Hong Kong, Zhuhai, and, and the metropolis Shenzhen just to the north. So this disruption in Hong Kong certainly uh, poses risk to China's development plan. Hong Kong was also the finance center for a lot of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, that the Chinese were looking to unveil over the next couple of years. So I, I don't believe that a, a pure takeover of, of Hong Kong, meaning boots on the streets, military equipment, you know, what, what, we, what, what we constantly conjure up when we think about Tiananmen Square uh, is going to happen here in Hong Kong. In fact, I think this law has shown Hong Kong citizens that Beijing is serious enough uh, to deal with this through law enforcement or legal means. You know, as strong as, as, as these things are, they're not tanks in the streets. It, you know, that's, that doesn't give us much uh, in the way of solace. But I don't think we're going to see an armed takeover of, of Hong Kong. But I don't think you need to do that. Uh, well, the, we've, seen, we've seen the chilling effects here. Well, we've, we, we would have to understand that the world would have to respond if you did see tanks in the streets, so to speak, in Hong Kong as well. Dwardrick McNeil, thank you very much for those thoughts on China. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Don. All right, well, let's trade this, folks. I mean, Dwardrick brings up some pretty dire possible scenarios. Dan Nathan, I saw you nodding quite a bit during some of those discussions that we were just having mm -hmm. right now. Is this a scenario where the big banks of the world, right, the ones that we all know of, I'm not going to cite them by name, but everyone's got a presence there. Do they have to rethink what's going on, given China's reassertion of force in that particular region? Yeah, no doubt about it. I think we also have to rethink who the new ambassador is on Fast Money. And I think his name is Dwardrick, because that was pretty succinct <laughs> about what's going on there. Um, sorry, Tim. Um, you know, I'll just make one point about it. I mean, when you think about what what's going on with our markets, um, what is one of the potential big headwinds is that we're in a cold war with China right now. How are we going to react to what some of the human rights abuses are going on there? That's really a big question. And then how does that affect our supposed trade deal or trade situation with China? And what does that do to global growth at a time where it's really important that we remove every impediment to global growth? So I honestly think this is something really important for investors to keep an eye on. Your guess is as good as mine. Um, I don't think it's going to turn into a hot war, but it's going to be cool for a while until we see who the president of the United States is uh, in you know, mid-November. So, 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 Karen, I, I would like to turn to you here as well. We're speaking about Hong Kong in the greater context of the, of the U.S. relationship with China. But in many ways, that relationship with Hong Kong is the tip of the iceberg. There are also headlines coming out with regard to human rights, alleged human rights violations, we'll call them, with Uyghur Muslims in the region, other human rights violations as well. This is not the first time that the U.S. will have to stand up to something that's coming out of China. It's not just Hong Kong, is it? 
No, it's not. I, you brought the Uyghur and, and the trade deal, right? So, um, but for Trump, he's walking a very high tightrope in that he really wants to show how hard he is on China, what a hard line he would hold, and, you know, sort of, you know, point out that's one of his strengths. On the other hand, he is definitely focused on what the market is doing. And, you know, we saw, we got a tiny glimpse of it a week or two ago when Navarro said something that was sort of off message uh, about, you know, we don't have, the, the, the first part of the trade deal was sort of falling apart. And then the market was down 3%, and then within minutes they're like, no, no, everything's fine, everything's fine. So I, I, I don't know which of those things weighs more, his wanting to be a hardliner or him caring about the market. My guess is that he cares more about the market and that that will dictate policy. But I don't know. It's, it, is, it is a question mark out there. Markets and the economy. It is an election year after all, for sure. All right, all right, folks, we have some breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Let's get right out to Kayla Tausche with all of those details. Kayla. Don, the House of Representatives has unanimously passed a bill that the Senate passed late yesterday evening that would extend the application window for the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program from yesterday evening at midnight to August 8th. That puts it about nine days after uh, those expanded unemployment insurance benefits are set to run out, uh, which would allow many more businesses, if they have not yet applied for PPP, uh, to apply for their first PPP loan with the $134 billion that is left uh, and also try to get uh, more of those uh, workers back on their payroll uh, as that unemployment insurance uh, begins to run out in late July. This is a significant development. We've heard Treasury talk about the money that is left over in the program and the idea that it would be repurposed for harder hit businesses in the next go round. But at least lawmakers at this point want to give more businesses an opportunity to get a bite at the apple since there is money left and there is no fourth stimulus bill that has been yet negotiated. Dom? Fiscal stimulus still front and center for many traders out there. Kayla Tausch with the latest on the Paycheck Protection Program. Thank you for that. Coming up on the show, Beyond Meat is at it again, this time securing a new partnership which is sending their shares sizzling to the upside. You should sink your teeth into this trade or should you not stick around? We're going to find out. But first... Looking for fast money? Options traders are betting on an electric rally in this name. That mystery chart's up there. Yep, that was a clue. Much more ahead on Fast Money coming up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some big surprises out of the auto industry today as the major automakers release second quarter sales numbers. Phil LeBeau joins us now from Chicago with the details there on how healthy America's auto market is, Phil. Uh, these were pretty ugly numbers, Don, but we knew they would be ugly numbers. Remember, you had most of the industry shut down anywhere between six and eight weeks, depending on where the plant was. And what we're talking about here are the sales from the manufacturing plant to the dealerships. Now we're talking about this is not you and I going out to dealerships. But look at these numbers. Nissan down almost 50% in the second quarter. There you see Fiat, Chrysler, GM, and Honda. None of these numbers are anything worth uh, writing home about. In terms of General Motors, we should point out that the retail sales for GM... Those are the ones that uh, really did a little bit better than expected, down just 24%. Fleet market, rental car companies, some of the other uh, you know, firms, government agencies, 
they're dead right now. And that's not just the GM, that's with everybody. This is what we're looking at in terms of annual sales. Now, the estimate for the full year has been $15.5 million. For the second quarter, the estimate is going to be closer to a pace of 13.3 million vehicles. One automaker we have not heard from yet is Ford. We will get those numbers tomorrow morning. And when you look at Ford, keep in mind that uh, much like GM and like Fiat Chrysler, really all the automakers, it was shut down about six, seven weeks. So its sales will be impacted. Don't expect great numbers from them as well. All right, Phil LeBeau with the latest on the auto numbers. They are not looking good, as you pointed out there. We appreciate the update. Karen, what exactly do you make of the numbers? I, I, Phil points it out very well. We knew they were going to be bad. Was this more or less bad in your mind than, than what you thought it would be? Right. Well, we knew they were going to be bad, and they delivered on that promise. And, you know, I don't know uh, that it was any much worse than I would have expected. I own GM, which has been terrible this year. There was a few bright spots for them and for some others. The truck business is still a really good business, high margin. Um, but, you know, the, when you're shut down for that long and you have those kind of fixed costs to absorb, it's, it's going to be, you know, the, the earnings are going to be terrible. This is just... Um, car sales. But I, I'm sort of more optimistic that there will be a rebound. I do think there is a sort of post-COVID story of people want, not wanting to take public transportation, not wanting to drive and wanting their own cars. So um, this stock, for me, GM has not worked uh, and they suspended their dividend, which is the right thing to do. But I am still long. It's sort of my pain trade, I guess. All right. so I don't know how long, but I've been in it a while. All right. I mean, this is a pain trade for sure. We just showed a board of the intraday action today. They were all down. I mean, Guy Adami, I'll turn to you for this one here. Is there any any of those companies, whether it's GM, Fiat Chrysler, Toyota, any of those guys, legacy automakers that actually resonate with you right now that you'd want to own? No, in a word. I mean, it's something we've said for a while. I mean, you think about it. And, you know, the stock market is within a whisper of an all-time high, effectively. Uh, and GM, in, in, a, in a decade where it's never been a better environment, the stock couldn't get out of its own way. And the same thing with Ford. There, there, I don't find any real compelling reasons to be loaned those stocks. We set it for a while. CarMax, on the other hand, is fascinating. Topped out at 103 in February, traded down to 37 in a straight line, and then went right back to 103. So... You have a huge double top. You're looking for an opportunity to buy this stock again. That's where you want to look in names like this. I think that's where the beta is, and that's where the upside is. I still think there's a little room to the downside in CarMax, but KMX should be on everybody's radar screen, in my opinion. All right, we're going to stick with the auto trade because it was a big day for Tesla, which stock hit an all-time high. It actually overtook Toyota. Toyota as the world's largest automaker by market value. And options traders are betting on even bigger gains ahead for the electric vehicle maker. So Mike Coe is here to break down the action. What exactly are you seeing, Mike? This thing has been on a tear. It's, it's, I don't even know what to say anymore because statistically it's in rarefied air with the stock move. It cannot keep going higher, or can it? It's extraordinary, and I think actually that's really what options traders are taking a look at. It's hard to reach out and buy the stock at these elevated levels, but obviously momentum is on its side, and that might be one of the reasons that we saw calls outpaced put significantly by about two to one on above average volume today. And most of that activity is concentrated in very short-dated call buying, specifically the most active options 
where the weekly 1,200 calls, those actually expire only tomorrow. Buyers bought over 40,000 of those, and they spent $3.5. That's a very small fraction of the stock price. But I would point out, for those that are making these kinds of bets, that the option market is implying it's a relatively low probability bet as well. Right now, the options market is implying about an 8% chance that the stock manages to somehow actually reach new highs tomorrow and exceed that $1,200 strike price. All right. So bullish but tempered bullishness, I guess, at these statistically very rarefied levels. Mike Coe, thank you very much for that update on Tesla and the options action around that. We've got some breaking news right now, folks, on McDonald's. Let's get out to Rahel Solomon with the details there. Rahel, what can you tell us? Hi, Dom. So yet another major company reversing plans to reopen. This time it's McDonald's. As you mentioned, we're just getting headlines that it is pausing the reopening of dine-in service in the U.S. The company says that it will wait three weeks before any new U.S. restaurants can add dine-in service to its menu, to its drive through takeout, and delivery operations. So McDonald operators had started to reopen in some places as early as May, offering limited dine-in service. And around 2,200 of its 14,000 U.S. restaurants do now allow customers to eat their meals inside. Dom, an important asterisk here. According to this press release, companies stating that restaurant owners that did already begin offering dine-in service They can continue if their jurisdiction allows that. But, of course, this comes as at least five states in the country are now seeing spikes in coronavirus, some even seeing records. Of course, this hurts most the restaurant operators who have already been under pressure since coronavirus struck. But again, McDonald's saying that it is pausing the reopening of dine-in service. It's going to wait three weeks to sort of reassess. But if McDonald's operators or if McDonald's locations had already been opened and they are still allowed to do so, they, however, can continue. You can see shares of McDonald's are down fractionally almost 1% in extended trading. Dom, I'll send it back to you. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much for that. Uh, I'll turn to you, Tim Seymour, maybe not out of the realm of reason. We, We have a lot of chatter and talk these days from jurisdictions all across the country about pausing indoor dining, including in California now and New York. So McDonald's, any restaurant company, Still too much uncertainty, or do you kind of want to get in at this point? I think McDonald's has, has proven that, you know, a lot of these restaurant companies, Chipotle being probably the top of the list, have been rewarded uh, during this period, almost given a, a multiple enhancement on their ability to, to show digital delivery uh, and, and, you know, that, that type of growth to their business, which has led to larger ticket sizes. McDonald's is probably one of the great beneficiaries because, in fact, um, you know, their ability to actually push their delivery business uh, and just some of the, the, the the kiosk and some of the, the takeout that's more along the digital line and the loyalty program is is part of what McDonald's had been re-rating for for the previous two years. I, I think the fact that McDonald's is not necessarily an eat-in story anyway, um, I think this isn't a huge hit to McDonald's. But the stock's been trading between 175 and 185, and I think you're range-bound. I, I think you know this this news isn't isn't going to I think break the bottom of that range unless overall markets break it. Um, but I don't see McDonald's breaking out from here. It had a sharp uh, recovery, and I think we're I think we're stalled. It has been somewhat of an underperformer. Guy Adami, is the golden arches still kind of golden in your mind right now? Yeah, I mean, it's down 18% from last August when it made an all-time high, I think, at 220-ish. And here we are at 180. So it's clearly, to your point, underperformed as opposed to a CMG, which is within a whisper of an all-time high and a stock that continues to be somewhat parabolic. We've talked about CMG for a while. I'll give you the second derivative trade, though, given this news, is you buy whoever makes those air fresheners for the car. 
Because I got to tell you something, if you've ever eaten McDonald's in your car with the windows up, brother, you know what I'm talking about? Get along those names, whatever they might be. I would just Maybe say it's that, just your car. I would just say this. I, I have used McDonald's a number of times, and I've done that, that curbside service where you park in the numbered stall. You go on your app, you tell them, I'm in stall number two, and they bring you out your food. And yes, I, the, the fries never make it home for me, is basically what it comes down to. So. Yeah, it's interesting, Tom. Stall abs- absolutely being the operative word there, if you know what I mean. Stall number two. <laughs> yeah, Stall number two. All right, guys, <laughs> yeah. thank you very much for that McDonald's trade here. Coming up on the show, a payment pop. That's what we're going to call it. Square shares soaring on a very big upgrade. We'll tell you how our traders are trading that name when Fast Money returns after this. All right, we are just moments away, minutes away from a huge night on Mad Money. The CEOs of General Mills, Constellation Brands, William Sonoma, all joining our own Jim Cramer tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. But stick around, we got more fast money coming up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Square surging as Rosenblatt Security slaps a buy rating on the payment play and increases its price target to 121 bucks a piece. So time to square up and buy the name. Dan Nathan, we will go to you on this one. Payments technology. It's hot. It is hot. It's fantastic. They're changing the way that uh, commerce is done. Um, but, you know, this stock sold off 50 percent in March and it's rise risen about 200% since its lows in March. I think that more than uh, adequately accounts for some of the trends that are happening here. I think investors need to chill the you-know-what out here a little bit. This company has two-thirds of the market cap of American Express um, that is down about 25% of the year. This stock is up 85% of the year, trading about 11 times sales. To grow into these valuations in this business that is crowded for all intents and purposes, despite them being very early on some of of the things that they're doing, some of the initiatives, the cash app and such, it's just this is not how you make money long term, buying stocks up 200 percent in the middle of the deepest recession in 100 years and in, in, in one of the most difficult pandemics or health crisis we've also seen in decades. All right. One word answer. Dan Nathan, PayPal or Square, which one? Uh, I, listen, I like Square longer term versus PayPal. one word. From All right. Square, he says. All right. Dan Nathan, thank you very much. He used more than one word. We'll give him a pass on this one. Coming up next, we got final trades coming up. All right, welcome back. Final Trades, Rapid Fire Edition. Tim, to you first. Buying Starbucks weakness. All right, Dan Nathan. Sell XLE. All right, Karen Feinerman. Yeah, Gap. I like the Kanye deal, but now there's less froth. All right, and Guy Adami to you. CMG, brother. All right, that's it for this show tonight. Keep watching. Mad Money's coming up next. 